Okay, so just hold. Can you hear? That's perfect. Okay. I can hear you both. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to introduce the show and then introduce you and we'll go from there. The amazing new Westport Library and iTunes proudly presents Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. And me, Mix Burroughs. And uh, today, uh, Mix and I are extremely excited to have Shell Tommy as a guest today. Um, He's a legendary record producer uh, who created the raw guitar and drum sound that was a signature sound of early British rock, put the who and the kinks and the easy beats on the map. Um, His influences are still heard today. He's influenced rock for over 50 years. Uh, when I was in middle school and high school, in my bands, we, we played a lot of the hits that he, he produced. Uh, we were one of the first uh, people in the area to have My Generation album, and it blew our, blew our minds. And, um, and so thank you for being on the show, Shell. Hey, hey it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for all the kind words. Very nice to hear them. Do you have a question yeah. there? Well, my fanboy thing is, I went to, <laughs> I went to England in 1966 to explore the rock scene. I got arrested. So I was in prison for a month in, uh, outside of London. Uh, I came my first night out. I, I had some sleazy apartment in Westbourne Park. I'm walking the streets and I hear Friday on my mind coming out of one of the, a window of somebody's apartment and it lifted my spirit. I was so down. I was so depressed. And the first song I heard after a month in prison was Friday on my mind. And it's been my favorite song ever since for, the, for that and many other reasons. But, um, and uh, so I want to thank you for that. <laughs> what did you do for, as I put you in the slammer for a month? Yeah, well, essentially it was, uh, I guess, the equivalent of vagrancy. It wasn't drugs, but I, I was sleeping in a house. I had, no, I had no room and I had no place to stay. And I was sleeping in a house and it turned out to be a, an abandoned mansion owned by Queen Elizabeth. So I, I had basically had trespassed on Crown property. And uh, that's how that happened. I guess you got to check out where you sleep in that case, don't you? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I was, I had no money. And I, anyway, that's, that's another whole story. But um, yeah. Shell, do you want to tell, um, it's a really fascinating story about how you got in there to produce those first uh, singles by The Who and Kinks and others, like when you met the, the, the executive from Decca Records. Do you want to tell uh, how that all went down and your I, background before that? You, you want to know when I got to London, what I then did, in other words, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. Okay, starting back from, I was a recording engineer in Los Angeles, and the studio was owned by an English guy who, my friend Phil, who uh, told me how great England was, and I thought, as I was in my very early 20s, that I should really see something of Europe and England, and particularly before like passed me by, so I said, cool, I'm going away for five weeks, and uh, I will go do that, and I'll be back. And um, I took the precaution of actually talking to people in LA to see who they knew in London, and my friend Nick Benet, who was at Capitol Records, he was the Capitol Records A&R guy, um, said, because I said I'd like to work a couple of weeks, I could, just because I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of bread. And, uh, and I didn't really want to sleep somewhere that the Queen owned. So um, uh, <laughs> I, I just finished a couple of uh, some demos here, take them and say, um, that you produce them. I said, okay, cool. And um, as I got to London, and uh, it was pretty 
pretty much everything that I thought was going to be, maybe even more because it was relaxed. It was a very comfortable place to be. Uh, I also had a good contact there by one of my LA friends, and he set up a, uh, an appointment for me with Dicko, who was head of um, A&R at DECA. And I went into DECA, and being uh, generally at that point in early 20s, fairly brash, but even being particularly brash because I didn't care that I was going back in five weeks. I said, here I am. I uh, am allegedly a, um, the, uh, the best record producer you're ever going to find out of, uh, out of America because um, that's what I do. And um, here's what I just did. And I gave him the two acetates that my friend Nick gave me, which happened to be Lou Rawls and the Beach Boys. Yeah. And, uh, and Nick, um, and rather, Nick Rose said, great, you start today. So, and and um, by the time they found out it was all bullshit, uh, I already had a major hit or two. So you know, they were gen- definitely enough never to mention it, and I kind of stayed on for the next 17 years. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. So, yeah, so brash, yeah, I guess you're known for being very brash. And, 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 and what le- where did you, you know, the, the sound, that very distinctive, you know, gritty guitar sound, was that something you always heard in your head that nobody else had achieved, or...? Well, it's not only just what I heard in my head, it's what I, I worked on perfecting back in L.A. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on how to get the best sound out of the guitar, how to get the best sound out of drums, which included the fact that I started using 12 mics on drums, which nobody in L.A. was doing, and certainly nobody in England was doing. And uh, I threw all that with me. I mean, I, not necessarily intentionally. I just, that, that's what I've been working on because I was always trying to improve the sound of what we were trying to do. And um, so when I got there, that's, that's the way I recorded. And um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it just a, a little aside here, in the first couple of sessions, uh, when I was striking up the drums, which I did myself, with a dozen mics, I said, you can't do that because it's going to phase. And I said, like, you just have to listen and see if it does or not, which, of course, it didn't. You know, like two months later, they're using a dozen mics. So um, that, that's how all that came about. And your next question is, how did I meet the who? <laughs> yes, thank you. The <laughs> uh, so who I met because at, at that time I had a small office in the Soho district of... Uh, uh, the West End in London, which is where a lot of the record people were. And um, a lady that was working for me part-time was friendly with the two managers, the two new managers of the, the Who, who were um, previously the high numbers. And, they said, and she said, um, they would like me to come, and could I listen to the band? I said, hey, okay, thank you. I was a person that in that kind of situation where I was working for people to record and good people and uh, I went and they were recording in a church hall it was nice and echoey and uh, that's just kind of interesting I don't think I've ever been a, 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 a rehearsal in a, in a church hall but what the hell yeah. and uh, they started playing I think you know, literally about eight or nine bars into it but yeah Michael signed them and they were the best rock band I'd heard since I got people and um, uh, uh, it, in fact, Dalton started singing "I'm a Man," which uh, oh, yeah. 
And I said, yeah, I can actually work with these guys. So that's how it all came about. So you, you also produced uh, for the Kinks. You really got me and all the day and all of the night. So there's this story they follow that those <laughs> singles around you probably heard it a million times. Before the Who, I there's a street in England or in London which you may know called Denmark Street. Yeah, at that time it's a very small street. It was actually loaded with publishers. That's all. Was there publishers and a couple of instrument stores? <clears throat> I was visiting my friends at one of the publishers one day and waiting for them to. Um, we were all going to lunch, and uh, Robert Weiss, who was one of the Kinks managers, and, uh, and they were formerly the Ravens, by the way, uh, walked in with a bit with the demo, and he said, uh, uh, "Anybody would like to listen to the demo?" And I was standing up in front with nobody else, and I said, "Yeah, I'll here. I'll listen to it." So I did. I loved what I heard, and um, I met with the band, and uh, we got on extremely well, and I then took them into is it true that that uh, ray davies or one of them always says that they got the sound on one of those singles because it was a ripped speaker and they let it go and they got they got it gave their special gritty sound is that tr a true story but that's 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 not right that's dave dave dave, dave is was always will be the guitarist thingy page did not play the lead solo which I think that's probably about five thousand times. And uh, he had a, a small uh Pico speaker that uh, that we used to you know because we were trying for something gritty and we used to kick every now and then and he used a razor blade on it and like that and that was yeah. uh twenty two and A C thirty amp. So we got that's the both both worlds with that. Why? I have a quick. Um, why? I mean, this is re repeated all the time. It's just it comes with the story that Ray and Dave fighting constantly, but they never say what they're fighting about. Was it over music? Was it over personalities? Was it just brotherly jealousy? I mean, what 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 were they fighting about? I, I think the latter is probably closer to a brotherly jealousy. Yeah. I honestly did not want to get into why they were fighting when they started. That I call for a coffee break for the rest of us and let them go to it. You know, we can we'd, we'd come back and hopefully there wouldn't be any blood on the floor. <laughs> and you're recording. So, you know, but when that worked out fine, yeah. I, I honestly, I don't know what the hell we're fighting about. It was just constant bickering. I, I had one, I'm just curious if you were there when I, in 1966, also after that, I started going to clubs and I went, I saw The Who at Tiles. Do you know it was a nightclub called Tiles on Oxford Street? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Anyway, that's the first time I saw The Who in 1966 in this club called Tiles. What, tell the name of the club, because I'm not understanding. T-I-L-E-S. Like okay, no, okay, I know it. I was, I was never there. Okay. Anyways, I would just, you know, never, probably the most... Our radar screen. <laughs> yeah, that's what I know. It's probably, you know, the most... Uh, monumental performance I ever saw on a stage. I mean, it was in this crowded little club and it was in 1966. And of course, you know, they're wearing the union jacket. Pete was wearing the union jacket and, and uh, anyway, it was, and it was amazing. So, um, 
I remember you came back and I was still in high school. I was drumming back then. My style of drumming was like, uh, you know, um, Charlie Watts style. You told me that some girl threw the, her bra at the who, and you, and you, you talked about Keith Moon. And, um, after that, I was like a, a Keith Moon fanatic and, uh, <laughs> I held my drumming after him for the next 30 years. Keith, in my opinion, I've said it many times, was the absolute best rock cover of all time. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to tell people, too. <laughs> I, I have a video of them on uh, YouTube. I, I took the video at the Fillmore East playing uh, Can't Explain. Um, and uh, I, I got the real close-ups because I was really close and um, in the theater, but a phenomenal uh, drumming. I mean, you can see, you know, I sort of zeroed in on him and you can just see the intensity in his face. Um, okay, I'll give you my, my short story about which I cannot related before, but I'll tell you again with, uh, with Keith. And Keith, as you know, was a wild man when he was coming. And, and here I had just liked everything up with my dozen wife. And I said, Keith, I want you to do me a favor. These mics are really expensive. I don't care uh, how close you get. Don't fucking hit them. So, <laughs> no problem. And um, he never, he got about maybe a millimeter close, but he never hit a mic. So that, that's one of my better stories about uh, Keith and why he was such a brilliant drummer. Right. Yeah, precise. Now, why didn't the, what happened? Why didn't the Easy Beats, I mean, you, you gave, you know, you were responsible for their hit. They had been in Australia, and they had some success there. But the, the Friday on my mind really put them on the map. And and then what happened after that? I just, uh, you know, what do you think? What what? Just why do bands like that fall apart when they got everything going for them? Uh, there is. Uh, this is really probably a longer story than you had time for. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to give you a short version. They came to England after some success. In Australia, they had a manager named Ted Albert, right. uh, who was the son of the leading publishing company in Australia. So uh, thanks, Dad. You know, he started <laughs> his own little uh, uh, production company. And um, when they when they came to England, they were initially signed up with uh, United Artists. I think that I think I'm correct in saying. And um, he produced such a lousy couple of tracks, they fired him. Mm -hmm. so, and, um, that's Ted Albert I'm talking about. So then um, they, uh, the, the manager who was actually really the manager, the guy named Mike Vaughn, started seeking out other people. And they, they came to me, uh, and was the way I'd be interested. So I listened, I said, yeah, I was really interested. I liked the band a lot. I didn't like the songs they were doing. And um, so I asked them to go away and write stuff and come in to my office, you know, once a week and play me what you've written. And, you know, we eventually, hopefully, will come up with a great song. And this went on for about five or six weeks until they came up. And um, um, I, I played Friday Night Mine and literally about four parts. And I said, yeah, that's it. We're going to do it. That's and I. I um, uh, got studio time we, you know, in about you know, the next week or so. We went and did it, and uh, it took, I think, maybe about three or four takes because it was that good. I, by the way, I always rehearse the bands before I go in, so this is not like uh, right. uh, we're going to start from scratch.
scratching. Uh, what do we do now, guys? And, you know, I always walk in, walk in knowing about, hopefully about 90% of what I'd like to hear and leaving around 10% for something that's that wonderful might happen on the session. So, right. Anyway, um, that's, that's the story of Pride in my mind. And um, uh, it became an international hit. Yeah, it was phenomenal. But again, you know, they why not? Did the band just, again, personalities, they just couldn't hold it together? I mean, they're on their way to huge, bigger success. Uh, okay, yes, I'm sorry. I didn't ask the second part of that yeah. question, did I? Um, for openers, Ted Albert chose, uh, after I had a signed contract, not to honor it. And, wow. uh, and so, therefore, after I did an album's worth of stuff, I did no more. And uh, they um, um, were unhappy with what they were doing. A couple of them stayed on in England for another couple of years, and they eventually went back to uh, at, at, with no success. By the way, they had, they had another year, uh, and they went back to Australia. And of course, they then started ACDC, which were you know a couple of their brothers and things like that. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Uh, and um, that, that's, that is the best I can tell you. I, I'm assuming is that because they stayed on and they had little to no success that they decided to you know, finally say, hell with it, let's go back to Australia where they were certainly superstars. And by, by the way, you know, the in my mind was voted as the greatest Australian record of all time. Oh. In <laughs> yeah, well, it's... It's on my, I literally, I run, you know, I go out and run on the streets and I, I have it on my, I listen to it every time I run. It's in my little playlist and I, I, I still love it. I've listened to it hundreds of times. Um, I, oh, it's, I, it's like, and, I, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm really sorry that, that uh, what happened happened because I would love to have continued mm. um, producing them because we would have come up with more stuff. And, um, Unfortunately, it didn't happen. So there you go. Yeah, right. yeah. in touch with them. I mean, I just saw a documentary, and you know, at first I saw early videos, and that the lead singer Stevie Wright is like this dynamo jumping all over the stage in this documentary that was recorded about five years ago. I mean, he's gained a lot of unrecognizable. I mean, his voice is shot. He's overweight. He's to be ever in touch with these with well, any of them. No longer with us. Right? You know that, right? He's, he's dead. Died, died several years ago. Oh, oh, okay. Something like that. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Wow. So is there anything, I know I saw one of these things in a bio that um, you suggested, you tried to get Decca interested in Manford Mann and Georgie Fame, and they, they reclined, but weren't, they were like huge in England, so someone finally figured out that they were, they were talents. It was apparent from the get-go that I was an independent producer because everybody, when I got to England at that time, all the A&R producer guys were on a salary. They're making not a whole lot of money. And um, I said, again, because I, I, was, I was, as far as I was concerned, I was going back in five weeks. I didn't care. I said, I'm a producer, meaning I get royalties and um, like that. And I'm not actually working for you. You, you can pay me a weekly uh, stipend, which I accept. And uh, but I'm not really an employee of DECA. So that's part of what I wanted to do, of course, was bring another band, and I brought in both, Charlie James and Manfred, and uh, they turned the boat down, and that's when I resorted to being 
So what kind of projects are you still producing? Well, I, I haven't, I, I, I restarted a, a few months ago. Uh, I did not, I, I, let's see if I can back up here. Um, the music business got, that's a good word. Uh, it has, it went to directions that didn't thrill me because I happen to like music. And for several years, there was not a whole lot of what I considered music in music business. Huh. Um, recently, and I'm crediting actually uh, Billy Eilish's brother for uh, making the really good modern records, but also doing music. And this being a nice copycat industry, everybody's very copying her. I'm copying music is back in the charts. And that got me interested again. So that's what I've been doing. On top of which, that uh, I also am, have been very active in licensing material. Uh, but she's some of my tracks. In other words, I mean, currently, I mean, um, my uh, Chad and Jeremy track of Summer Song is was being was used for chorus like beer and uh, my uh, creation track of uh, making time was used by audi and uh, another creation track is in the new uh, rambo film so uh, so i've been doing some of that also with a company that uh specializes in licensing material for you know whatever film tv video games etc and um, and that that plus the fact that the business, I think, finally turned where there's music back and they tried to got me back in the studio. That's really what I've been up to doing in the last few months. Right. You also write, don't you? Have you written? I know you read you read a book. What do we do now, Butch? And uh, or is it was that a, a screenplay or a book? I it's a it's a book. Yeah, a book I wrote called What Do You Do Now, Butch? Um, what do we do now, Butch? I should say and. Uh, it was taken from the point of view of them allegedly dying in a shootout in uh, Venezuela, I think, was it? Well, whatever, one of those yeah. countries. And, um, and so I took the that they actually went back to England and got into a big caper. And uh, the, uh, the book came out, and it, it, has been, it, was, <laughs> it was optioned four separate times. But you you claim that they never died in Bolivia, right? You I mean that's your theory or do you have your yeah, evidence? I, have no idea, right. I, I don't think they did. I, I, I researched it as much as I could as much as it was available. I don't think they did die. And and um, there's been many stories about Bush in particular having come back to America and calling himself another name. And uh, and lots of people think that he actually was Bush, uh, including his sister, who claimed that she came and visited him a couple of three different times. So, you know, uh, there's no way to prove it one or the other. This stage the game, but uh, I thought it'd make a good book, and you know, and, and it was fun to write. Wow. So, any are you currently writing, working on any other writing projects? I mean, or just I, but well, currently what I'm doing, I find since I decided to be back. In the studio, I recently opened a Facebook account and an Instagram account, and I've been posting vignettes of 
about the bands I worked with, bands from Rock History, and that kind of thing. And um, uh, yeah, check it out. It's on Facebook. All the uh, Instagram is, you know, of course, is mainly photos and stuff like that. So uh, the longer the stories, uh, which are longer than Instagram goes for, are all on Facebook. Is it under your name? If we just uh, under my name, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, no, it's apparently going very well. I've, uh, um, uh, I've been getting tons and tons of followers. Like you know, surprised the hell out of me. I don't know how many people appear to be interested. So well, yeah, check it out. You might well, like it. We will. Well, this this podcast is uh, goes out on iTunes, so hopefully you'll get even a, another more of an audience. Uh, now, I read somewhere, this is something delicate, but uh, that you lost your sight when you were younger. Is that true? Uh, I, I have an inherited eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, uh-huh. which uh, takes decades to get to the point where I can no longer see. I'm at that point now, but for uh, decades that was not the case. Uh, and there's um, they're doing a lot of research on it, mm. and I believe that at some point it's going to be stem cells that are probably going to cure it, but so far that hasn't happened, and uh, I'd like to think that I'll still be around when they do find something, but uh, it's not going to not. You know, I'll cope with it the way I have to cope with it. And we thank you so. We want to thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us, Shell. Uh, as really, as you can tell, we're both huge British rock fans, Who fans, and Kinks and Easy Beats, especially. It's just great because you uh, you encompassed all that. You're responsible for all that and uh, made our lives gave me a lot of joy. Anyway, yeah, same. Still feeding off of those those hits today. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I know I should appreciate very kind words and. Uh, it was fun doing it, and it certainly kept me off the street. So. <laughs> okay, well. Yeah. And I'm having a good time again being back in the studio. No, that's terrific. Well, you know, we're not supposed to be out on the streets anyway, so it's a good place. <laughs> <laughs> not right, not, that's for sure. Yeah. Not that right. Okay, thanks a lot. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>